Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Max Porter. Max is the author originally of Grief is the Thing with Feathers, which was a huge hit two or three years ago, and he's returning with a book called Lanny. Max, welcome. Lanny, what sort of book would you characterise it as? Because it's sort of like, like its predecessor, it's a strange mix of things. <laughs> I thought you were going to carry on. No, I was going to say, how do you how, how do you characterise it? No, I call it a novel. Yeah, I call it's it a novel. novel. It's a novel, and and uh, and it's quite unapologetically borrows from techniques of play scripts and children's books and various other things because I think that the novel should be free to do so. Yeah, and I'm disappointed when novels don't use more of the things available to them. So my novels will always, I hope, have different structural elements. Yeah from different genres. Absolutely. And it's set set in a sort of village outside London, would I assume, and it's got a sort of mythological element to it in the form of this character, Dead Papa Toothwort, who's a kind of presiding spirit. He's a kind of green man figure, isn't he? Yeah. How does it... What, what sort of role does he take in the book? Do you see it? What's he... He's a sort of post-green man. He's a sort of... He's a green man who understands that he's part of a, a storytelling tradition, but also is, is kitsch. So you have to load up the character with the, with the knowledge that they are a device, a bit like the crow in my first book. What he is simply is a way for me to write language that I really enjoy writing, and I think I must get over that now. I can't have a, I can't do another book with another mythological character who's able to say things that human beings can't about life and death. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> I mean, I could, but it would, it would get tired. USP. So what he is is a kind of He's a voyeur, but he he's also uh, pan-historical. He's existed since time began in this village, so he's a kind of historian, really, and is able to contextualise the behaviour he sees in the village according to sort of deep time, mythological time. So he's a kind of... For me, it was hugely enjoyable to write because he's a sort of uh, literary flaneur of English history, of English sensibility and history, so he's, his job is to observe the English people in their natural habitat and sort of... It's not poking fun at them. He's he's enjoying them. He's a sort of pervert for English tendency tendencies and, <laughs> and speech patterns and things like that. You call him a seventy fourth generation cultural hummus sifter. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but he's not. I mean, there's also a sort of sense in him. I don't know whether you think this was fair that he of not quite threat, but he's you know he kind of enjoys. You know, he's, there's the characters he doesn't like. He tears a bit of his nightmare skin off and chucks it through their windows to give them a bad dream. He sort of hugely enjoys a scene where Lanny's mother, you know, stabs to death a hedgehog. Mm. There's a sense in him of... He's danger, yeah. Yeah, he's darkness. Yeah, he's sort of Freddy Krueger of, of, of the English village in that he's a manifestation of people's anxieties. But in that again, in that respect, he's sort of... He's an homage to the fact that that we need those characters, that, that society needs bogeymen. But I, I like the idea that it, your bogeyman might actually, A, be, we, we don't want any spoilers, but what your bogeyman might be a projection of anyway. If you were to get your, I'm very interested in analysis, if you were to get your bogeyman on the couch and ask him how he feels, <laughs> a comfier couch than the spectator couch, and ask him how he feels about having been 
this sort of repository of a community's anxieties, but also a symbolic, having been a symbolic function. And, you know, he says he's been on the Cricket Club logo, he's been on the beer taps, you know. Yeah, he's kind How of pissed feel? off with the way he's represented yeah, himself. Well, it's just, ways, like, it's just it? funny he's... to him. He's like, oh, great, now I'm, a, now I'm a key fob. Now I'm, a, you know, now I'm Fat Dave's back tattoo. And I want him to have a kind of knowingness about that because he sees it in the kind of tradition of the kind of iconography of British countryside. And also, as I say, kitsch is very alluring to me anyway. I'm a collector of plastic tap. So I love the kind of green man as as water in can. But is, is he in some way kind of, I don't know, emasculated isn't the word, egreened by the sort of, you know, his recycling is kitsch, by the fact that the sort of myth and the things that traditionally give green, the green man power, mm. you know, the sort of superstition has been sort of evacuated from this village, which has become a kind of commuter dormitory. Yeah, but I'm trying to restore it to him. If there is if there is a sort of Anthropocene political agenda to the book, it's that actually what this child, this special child in the book recognises and what why Toothwort is so attracted to him is that he recognises the importance of a relationship between human beings and their natural environment and that, that the world will recover from the various sins done to it by, by human beings. So there's a sort of eco-ecstatic element to him which I actually take quite seriously so I don't I want him to be funny and I want him to be frightening and I want him to be a bit uncanny and all the kind of things that I'm interested in as literary elements but I also I want him to be pretty important as a voice in our community now yeah which is that which is that you've you've blown this and you need to you need the, the kind of the fundamental lie of human superiority in nature needs addressing and actually children address it quicker and more easily than adults do Actually, just as you said that, I thought, is, is there any of Alan Moore's swamp thing? I know. I don't know. You don't know the, know. the swamp thing. Oh. It's so funny. Everyone's got one. I was in Germany last week and they went, oh, he's Katwieselor. <laughs> some, <laughs> some TV character who kind of hides in the bushes. He's fungus the bogeyman, I suppose, to some extent. He's, there's a character whose name I can't remember in one of Alan, Alan Garner's early... You know, uh, uh, he's all those well, things. Well, if you're doing myth right, presumably that's exactly what happened. Exactly, yeah. What's your one called, Alan Moore? Sw- Swamp Thing. He's a kind of DC Comics character who represents, you know, the green. OK, I'll look him up. I'll, I'll dig him out for you. Yeah. Do you have a Swamp Thing back tattoo? I do, like Roger Stone and Nixon. <laughs> do you... I could not believe that. That that's when you realise you're just living in a wonderful time, and you've got to sit back and enjoy it. When I, there was that, and then closely followed by the Pecker, the Pecker Trump dick pic Bezos thing, you know, yes. Pecker exposes Bezos. I mean, it was just magnificent. What a time to be alive, even as the world ends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, now we've talked about Dead Papa Toothwork. You say you know he's got this connection with the titular character Lanny, who's this. Kind of almost fairy-like boy. What, what what's what's Lanny's role? Why is Papa Toothwort so attracted to him? Why is he? Why is Lanny his favourite? Well, I, that's the question I want the reader to be answering for themselves differently as the book progresses. Toothwort sets it up as being very interested in this child's. He's at that what you would call that ripe age, imaginatively, where he still has childhood eccentricity and the sort of precociousness of a childhood imagination, but he's also tuning into the adult world, and that's precisely the, the transition that Toothwort is finding attractive and refreshing compared to the kind of what he calls grinding lyric practical nonsense of the adult world, you know, shopping and shagging and, and paying bills and everything. So in comparison to that, Lanny represents this sort of loose, ecstatic fun with language 
so he finds that attractive. Then, then of course, you what you are being asked whether it's a sexualized thing, whether whether it's innocence versus experience and stuff like that. So I want it to be quite ambiguous what Lanny represents to all the different people in it, and I also want the adult characters in the book to possibly be have they imagined Toothwort is Toothwort a metaphor for the improper relationship? You know, I want I don't want any of these interpretive doors to be closed ever. I want them all open. But basically, he's childhood. And you never really meet him. You never really see him or hear him. There's little bits of dialogue with him, but they're reported. He's a sort of central absence in the book. But he's also, I think you describe him somewhere as being like a little, what do you call him? I've scribbled it down here, something. A a transmitter device. Mm. You know, he's sort of singing or burbling, or he's saying things that often people are like, what's that little song he's singing that doesn't make Mm. any sense Mm. or something? I mean, does he share some of Papa Toothwork's ability to, to kind of, absorb and transmit to kind of pull in yeah. things from around him. Yeah, exactly that, as children do. He, he, there's, no, there's no getting around the fact that he's also he's a strange child. And I, there are strange children. I've met some, possibly I'm rearing some strange children, and, and that, that kind of, when a child realises they have a certain sort of performative power in, in their eccentricity in saying weird things. But Lanny's not doing it as a... Lanny's not doing it because he's... Interesting, he's genuinely quite unusual. And as you say, he sort of sucks in things he's overheard and, and recycles them as song or melody or strange quotations. And in that respect, he's a, he's a kind of embodiment of literary, of a sort of magpie approach to literature. He doesn't know where he's read something or heard something. It could be in a comic, it could be in a TV show, but out it comes as a sort of weirdly fully formed response to the natural world or to the adult world. And that's a very strange thing to overhear as an adult. You think, Christ, how do they... Where do they get this stuff? And you realise that you're probably pumping in a fair amount of it and the rest of it is sort of being found around you and you don't realise what they're listening to. I love that when you suddenly realise a kid has been listening to an adult conversation. Yeah, sometimes mortifying. <laughs> but also you don't perhaps realise... I've read someone say they don't realise their kids are listening to the news every day when they pick them up at school until the kid pipes up in the back going, what's, se- what's sexual assault? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Christ, yeah, they listen every day to Radio 4. Yeah, I've had exactly um, the same thing happen with my kids. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yes, that's that's... That's what they have in common, the two principal characters. Yeah. And that kind of macaronic thing of pulling in different texts and fragments of text. I mean, one of the things that runs through the book, at least certainly through the first half of the book, is in the Dead Proper Truth work sections, you've got this sort of almost radio noise of snatches of conversation from the village. How did you sort of put that together? What was the... You know, did did you sit thinking up here and just hear hundreds and hundreds of fragments of things I could imagine people saying? I mean, some of them are very funny. Well, the, the ratio should be about approximately true to life. So some of it's quite funny, some of it's crushingly banal, and some of it's a bit nasty. So it's a portrait of. <laughs> I hope it's true. I mean, I haven't I haven't loaded it up with any of my. I haven't judged anybody in it, and I haven't. It doesn't have a sort of political agenda. That speech that is that is I hope about what people say to one another, and there's no poetry in it. Nothing. It's not prettified, and it doesn't function as a chorus like like it would in, in a drama or in a poem. So it is just stuff people say. And that's what he's interested in, is just, it's just the stuff of life. The point of it is is exactly right what you say about radio. It, it's supposed to be sound, and therefore there was some discussion about whether it should even be in there. I, I was going to have it as a footnote, and then I was going to have it as a sort of frame, so that the, the text of the book itself would be printed on a sort of bed of everyday chat, and it would be up to the reader whether they tuned into it or not. And my editors felt that they, it was interesting enough that you actually want it embedded. And then I started to put little bits of plot, you know, so people are 
judging the characters, principal characters, so there's some suspicion involved, stuff like that. And then I didn't want it to be bound by the same conventions of, you know, it, the, the minute you set text, it becomes literature and therefore carries kind of implicit mannerisms of, of the novel. Or And I wanted it to float free for that because it's sound. So we devised this kind of dancing around on the page, which seems to annoy some readers greatly. Oh, well, or it's easy to be... Some people are able to ignore it because it dances around. Well, a bit of me wondered whether, you know, as a publisher yourself or former publisher yourself, you were like... I know how to annoy my publishers by making it really hard to set. And it was so... We sat and did it an extraordinary... Because you've got different font sizes. In one case, you've yeah. got it going, which I, I bet must be very difficult to print, right up to the edge of the page. Yeah, I think that's quite hard, yeah. There's a woman called Kate Ward did it at Favour and we sat with, and with a pencil and I steered every line and then she went and did it. It was incredible collaborative, lovely process. But you did it on, on actual paper? You didn't, because it look, looks like it's been sort of computer... Yeah, she did it on the computer, but I, I, do the, I drew the pencil lines to show where I wanted it to go. The point is that as his plan, he has a plan, which we will give what happens in the book away, but as his plan... Yes, we say the book has a, has a, it has a stuff plot. Happens, it, may, yeah. it may sound yeah. like... It might, <laughs> Unexpected like, from, in a book of mine, yeah. yeah. Something <laughs> happens. But as that solidifies his, his dark intentions, that this village voice darkens on the page and squeezes together, and I, and I really enjoy doing that. That's lovely. And so there's a, it's almost like there's a glitch in it, and I think that that's quite fun, and that borrows some of the energy of, of concrete poetry and stuff, and I don't, know, you know, I don't know why we can't have more of that kind of fun in books. It, yeah. the, the standard review last night said, hilarious book about English life, really good fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, if you love books about modern life, you'll love this. Just ignore the, all the... All the pretentious experiment, uh, experimental crap with the <laughs> dancing on the table. The thing is, is that if you engage with it, it rewards you. It, so I think it's worth doing. And actually, I, I do think that th- there, are more, there are more ways to convey messages than we perhaps use or utilise fully in the writing of a novel. And one of them is, is the actual physical experience of the text on the page. And I think if you've got someone locked into a thing for a certain amount of hours, you may as well provoke them or entertain them or trick them or unnerve them in more than one way and that, that that text is one way of getting them to think quite carefully about what they what they're reading what they believe in and, and how they're relating to the text and especially because it comes at a crucial point where you're being asked have you been complicit in the in this gossip in this in this in this sort of prurient thing yeah so yeah how are it's you? also beautiful it's and also, we, it's also beautiful. beautiful no, I, th- I think one of the few things that probably does put off is the, is the publishing things. I remember Nicola Barker saying, because Happy has some very kind of complicated typographical messages. It's got colour and everything. Isn't it's got it? colour and everything. Yeah. And she said, you know, she'd, she'd pretty much expended all of her tolerance capital with her editor to get the kind of colour printing. And I'm sure that. Um, I think if British publishing ever runs out of tolerance capital for Nicola Barker, then we're done for. I think so. Let her do whatever she wants. Be mine. <laughs> exactly. Be mine. Exactly. One thing that made me. Think, was Undermilk Wood any sort of part of the DNA of this? Because that sort of slightly dreamlike, mm. multi-voiced quality to it, this portrait of a community. Awkward. Does everyone ask you this? No, but it's awkward for me because, I, 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 yeah, I think I read it at school. I, I mean, I have read Underwood Wood at some point in my life, but I certainly haven't read it recently. I saw a little bit of a film of it recently and thought, God, I... I suppose I should read Underwood. And then I won the Dylan Thomas Prize. You see, some sort of ambassador so in some ways. Yeah, and, I, and I've even said, you know, I've gone around schools and said to people, you must read Dylan Thomas. And I did, at a time in my life, read a lot of, of Dylan because my Welsh grandmother sort of was a writer passage in her. Yeah, first you did R.S. Thomas. And if that didn't break you, then you, could, then you were re- rewarded with the slightly more fun <laughs> Dylan Thomas. But no, yeah, I haven't gone back to Undermilk They're Wood. not very like each other, the Thomas brothers, are they? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Bruce. 
No, but you can see why my my granny would have thought that if I if I kind of make it through the existential dread of you know if I if I come out of the empty church alive, then I get a bit of a bit yeah. of boozy bonking and, and kind of teenage you know what's it all about stuff as my reward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it worked actually, <laughs> worked beautifully. That thing you were talking about the the way you wanted it as voice and you know you said when I said what sort of book is it? He said oh, it's a novel. But people, you know, you draw on techniques of the play. You've got this very oral. I mean, is this something, I know you're, you're hot foot from the South Bank where you've just been presenting an abridged version of it with actors mm. doing the different parts. I mean, do, do you want it to be read aloud? Is it a book that people should be reading aloud to themselves? I, I think I want everything to be read aloud, really, because I'm very interested in the, in the oral tradition and I think we have lost... I mean, I'm, I'm kind of of the Alice Oswald... Alan Garner's school that the oral tradition is where the energy comes from and that we have gradually flattened all that energy out you would probably have comparable opinions about rhetoric and, and public speaking and and the kind of flatness of social media the sort of extremity of opinion and, and, and but ultimately flatness of that you can achieve on social media and stuff in the, in the way we now communicate has lost the artfulness and delicacy and nuance and possibility you know performative possibilities of good public speaking do people read novels aloud to themselves? I don't know. I, I, I write my novels musically. I, I listen to music while I write, or I certainly listen to music while I while I think, so that I hope there is rhythm in there. What, what was and the I, soundtrack to this? Were you listening to kind of pounding industrial it, it, techno? Yeah, 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 exactly. No, no, lots of lots of English folk music and sort of... I listen to, I listen to electro, electronic music with no lyrics, so I need to be nodding my head, and then I would stop and, and listen to something very, very beautiful. You know, I, I want I want to flood the thing with with feeling. I hope that a novel can have almost prose poem levels of linguistic adventure on every page. I don't think I don't think a novel the way that novels sort of settled into its skin is a sort of that we expect to have great fifteen page long boring bits in between the exciting. I don't know why you have to do that. I think every page can be kind of burnished. Someone one of my reviewers called it whittled, which was the greatest compliment to me. That the, the prose might be whittled because that to me is as close a description as I can get to what it is. You start out with something unsatisfactory or familiar, and you whittle it until it's revelatory or beautiful, even. And that that seems like a decent working definition of why you'd write. Grief had a great welcome, which to you, I think, or to that's because it was an unusual original book, was a surprise for a lot of people. I mean, it's very, you know, it wasn't sort of an obvious book to suddenly become a huge bestseller, mm. I think. I mean, maybe that's that's, fair, that's, yeah. that's a fair characterization. <laughs> was it? I don't think it became a huge bestseller. You know, you've got to always remember, a literary bestseller is, is still only doing a fraction of what Alex Ferguson's latest biogs are doing, you know. Yeah. We're talking but it, 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 literary. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it had a substantial welcome. Was that kind of freeing in the sense you thought, right, I can be confident in doing what I do, or was it slightly like, oh, shit, how do I do that again? No, no, freeing. Re- readers will go anywhere you, you, you want with them. And even people will queue up and say, you know, I've never read a book like this and I, and I, and I loved it. it. It was different. That's a great encouragement that, that readers will go with you. But also I, I sort of thought, I, had to, I, was, I wrote it accidentally, you know, so actually the kind of pro-choice sitting down thinking, right, I'm going to try and do this. Or, for example, I'm going to try and create a character in absentia or I'm going to try and create a chorus-like effect. Or There were, there were sort of proper formal undertakings that, I, that I'd not quite scratched. 
So it's a continuation of the project. My next book probably won't be like this. It won't be built of small bits. It's a continuation project. Do you think of them as linked books? I think of them as related in in as much as they're trying to solve a, a similar problem, and they are they they share core thematic things which needed to be worked through. I needed to find a form for both projects. So the form, the triptych, and the use of a, use of the crow as a kind of way to get at literary homage in the first book, and similarly the mythological figure as a way to get to community and parental anxiety and stuff in this book they they seem to me linked yeah but maybe I mean, books are linked aren't they writers are at work on certain projects i think it's more it's more obvious with some writers than others if you think i mean i've been rereading elizabeth taylor she's at work on the similar set of concerns and the no- you can see that she's trying she's coming at it from a different angle someone like paul oster is obviously he's a project novelist isn't he you know he's, yeah. he's trying to solve the same problem over many many books for me, for me, the kind of anxiety, if there is an anxiety, comes at that is at the structural stage. It is how do I? I know what I want to do, and I know I'm fine on the line. How do I? What what shape is it going to take? So it's for me, it's sort of architectural issue. You've given the, the Lanny's parents. His mother is a writer, though she's a crime writer. What do you mean, though she's a crime writer? Sorry, if that's less than a writer. A crime writer. <laughs> Did I say he's a, he's, a, he's a cricket. Well, he's, he's a wicket keeper, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a crime writer. Well, she's trying to write a crime she's a, novel. She's, it's, she's it's a, a crime writer. Yeah. Well, what I meant was she wasn't a figure for the yeah. the writer of the book in that sense. Oh no, 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 no. But why did you make her a writer? Was that just a nice postmodern twist, or was it because there's no, a crime no? I wish story it was actually. Uh, I, I I made her a writer because she needed to be. She's a creative person, and I know from myself that if you she's stopped acting her career didn't take off as an actor she had a child they've moved to the country people of a certain it'll need output I mean do, do, you, do you, you know people like this you know I, I'm, I'm like this I, I have to do something if I'm not draw, you know I have to draw or, or paint or have a craft project going on or, or even be tiling the bathroom or something I have to, and she's like that so she started writing and she's also started writing as to formulate some of the anger she has and the postnatal depression led her to some quite interesting I, I I think interesting thinking that happens more in the visual arts than in literature about women's bodies and relationship to the bodies of children and the sort of eroticism of parenting and the sort of ways in which women's bodies are a sort of battleground for the kind of consumer industry of parenting and that kind of thing so she's in she's interested in the world and she's frustrated and she's got loads of time because the kids are at school the whole time so she started to write and she's obviously connected enough in london to have got herself an agent and sold a sold a book proposal and lanny's father he's got he's your basic london commuter isn't he he's got a sort of yeah. city job did you want him to be a figure for everything that wasn't green man world uh, slightly, yeah, but people people are very unkind about him. People think he's a, people think he's a git, which is a shame because I think I've I think he's sweet and forgivable and and like us, you know, like like people I know. He's struggling with the he's a part time countryman, you know, and he and he doesn't know where he belongs and he doesn't feel fully realised at home. He doesn't feel that he belongs at work, and, and so he spends all his time on the train, and that's a frustrating way to live. And he he suffers from the kind of spiritual emptiness that a lot of people do now they'd spend their whole time gazing at their phone and work's not especially satisfying and all he really wants to do is be loved and get laid and have friends and be liked he's sort of got a sort of he fetishizes respectability you know he wants to be liked in the pub and he wants to be liked at home and and he just is baffled by this strange eccentric son of his so he's sort of 
I, I, he's a kind of zeitgeist creation in that respect, yeah, and the kind of emptiness, existential emptiness that we all suffer from now. Slaves to our to our iPhones, strangers to our loved ones. <laughs> Make me cry. But did you did you like him? You, I sympathised with him. Yeah, I found him. I mean, particularly when he was all he was looking forward to was chicken wrapped in bacon. And yeah. He doesn't get it. Never you know? gets his chicken wrapped in bacon. No. <laughs> you have a lovely line about the, the chicken sitting there being a chicken that's destined never to be cooked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you live in town or in the country, Max? I live in Bath. You live in Bath. So brilliantly, my German publisher did a press release saying I lived in a tiny village, and I had to say on, on behalf of the people of Bath, we, we are <laughs> actually a moderate-sized city. I live in in a on the edge of Bath in a village, in a sort of village-like bit of Bath. But this predates that move. We just we classic move out of London for a bit more space and nicer people and better countryside. And I wanted to be near my brother in in Bristol and so on. And um, so it is. It is not a Bath novel. My next novel will be a Bath novel. It's going to be called The Tutting Capital of the World, which is what Bath is. <laughs> if you go into Waitrose with some children at 4pm on a Saturday, you will literally be assaulted by tuts. People just stand and, and go, oh, oh, and your children say things like, can we have Marmite? And they go, oh, oh. It's incredible. I think it's a particular meeting of, it's a sort of, Conference of factors, cultural and socio-economic, that means that there is as much tutting in Bath as there is. I'm very affectionate about it, but it's a problem for them. Well, there's about to be a mythological tutting figure you can work with. So. <laughs> yeah, Uncle Tut. Well, that's a world exclusive. For Grief is a thing with feathers. Lanny and the third in the trilogy, the tutting capital of the world. Max Porter, thanks very much. Thanks, Sam. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.